Well, good morning and welcome to Hill Country Bible Church. My name is John. I'm one of the worship leaders here. If you're watching online, I want to say a special welcome to you as well. Hey, we believe that God is at work here in this place and that His Spirit and His presence is here with us today. Amen? He's a God that cannot be stopped. Nothing in this world can stop the will of God. The love, grace, mercy, kindness, and compassion that He provides is like no other. And there's nothing better than our God. Personally, I have a lot to be grateful for, and I know you do too. So we're going to start our time today just focusing our mind, focusing our hearts on the Lord this morning. Would you please stand with us? We're going to sing and worship to Him. We encourage you to sing along and worship with us. Here we go. Try to hide you and steal you away. And death tried to keep you inside of the grave. The enemy fought you, he tried, but he lost. You cannot be stopped. cried for freedom, you tore down the walls, the weight of our burden, you carried it all, and our fears and our failures hang dead on the cross, you cannot be stopped. Stop. 
that truth that you're the only one who can. God, you bring dead things to life. You bring our old sinful past into a new relationship with you, into an everlasting family and an everlasting relationship. God, help us to walk that every single day. Help us to choose that every single day. God, to not carry the weight or the burden of the world alone, but to always ask you, God, for your direction, God, your help. God, we love you so much. We continue to sing to you, God, from a place of just desperation, but at the same time, celebration, Lord. Have our heart, have our complete mind. In Jesus' name, we pray and we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.
Give God praise this morning. Thank you so much for joining us for worship. Before you take a seat, why don't you meet somebody around you, tell them good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Hill Country Bible Church. My name is Justin Raspberry, and I have the privilege of serving on our executive team here, and it is just awesome to be in God's presence worshiping with you today. If you're online with us, we want to spend a welcome to you, or if you're here worshiping with us in person, it's so great to be with you guys. I also want to send a special shout out to our Leander folks. Those of you who might not know, we're one church in multiple locations, and this week, one of those locations had a water pipe bust. 
So we're one church uh, in two locations this week, but it's great to have you guys here with us today. And if you're a guest with us as well, we just want to spend a special welcome to you. Thank you for being here with us. It's truly our honor to, uh, we see you as a guest and we're just glad that you're here. We'd love to know that you're here and we'd love to hear about how God's working in you as you hear from him today. So you can always let us know about that. You can go to hcbc.com slash connect card, fill that out and someone from our team would love to follow up with you and just how we could pray with you or how we might be able to come alongside you as you discover more of what God has for you in your journey. Well, as you guys know, we've been sharing with you since uh, the fall, um, God has really, really been guiding this process for our next lead pastor. And um, I'm excited to tell you guys that after a ton of prayer, a ton of time in interviewing, extensive interviewing, our screening team, our executive team, our lead pastor, and even our elder boards have affirmed who we believe God has chosen to be the next lead pastor of Hill Country Bible Church, and that's Pastor Tim Cool. Yeah, that's exciting. We're excited about that. Um, but, but there's also another step in it, right? We're still praying and open-handed to what God would have, and you all have a big part to play in that, especially our members. Um, we will actually be taking a vote in three weeks. So on May 21st, we'll be having Tim Cool. will be here preaching. Yes, Tim, Tim Cool, as Pastor Tim called him, Second Timothy, last week. Um, we, uh, he will be here preaching on the 21st. Um, and, uh, and then after each service at all locations, we'll be taking a vote for our members. So we know that that vote is really important. And all of you guys are kind of thinking, man, we don't know this guy yet. So we want to take the opportunity of these next three weeks to introduce you to Tim. We're excited for y'all to learn more about him. In fact, just this week, we had the opportunity to spend some time with he and his wife, Wendy, and get to know them. So we want to share that with you guys. And just uh, why don't you guys listen in with us as we hear from Tim. Hey there, my name's Tim. And I'm Wendy, and we've been married for almost 24 years now. Yeah, and we've got four kiddos. Uh, our two boys are off at college, and our two girls are still in middle school, and that is the coolest. We met at a small Christian college uh, in San Diego, California. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah. then from there, when we graduated, uh, we took a couple ministry roles in the Southern California area and then spent 15 years at a church in a desert of Southern California. And then for the last four years, I've uh, been uh, the executive pastor here in the Coachella Valley. A funny story of how our two personalities both blend and clash is my idea on how I would propose to her. Mm. We had a friend at a large performing arts high school in Los Angeles, and I thought it'd be fun if I arranged for us to drive up from San Diego to LA, go to our friend's performance, but then arrange for the intermission raffle prizes for me to have set up that we had a winning raffle ticket, that I'd sneak out to the restroom during intermission and sneak backstage and come out on stage and propose to her as she went up to win her prize, that her prize was me. And they called Wendy up and she smelt it as she was walking on stage. Doggone it, that dude is proposing to be on stage in front of 1,800 people. I thought it was genius. She was less enthused about the setting. I'm an introvert, he's I'm, an extrovert. I'm, he loves being in front of people. I would rather be one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, it was not the most perfect blending of our two per personalities. <laughs> so I, I come out on stage proud and it all got pulled off exactly the way it was supposed to. Mm -hmm. And I drop to a knee and I say, Wendy, I love you, will you marry me? And she was frozen, frozen. And I'm like, Oh boy. So I literally said on mic, this is the part where you say yes. 
And I, you know, put the mic back to her and she said yes and the crowd cheered. And I was excited once I said yes yep. and we got off stage, then I was excited. Yep. <laughs> My journey with Jesus started from a young age, growing up in the church. I don't remember a time I wasn't in church or learning about God. By the time I got to college, I, it really became my own faith and I was able to kind of pave my own path yeah, and choose, it yourself. choose Jesus for myself and uh, opportunities for growth and taking myself out of my comfort zone and really excited to grow in God and in my understanding of the Bible and how it relates to my life. So my summer, my junior year of college, I chose to go on a missions trip with a team called Royal Servants. We went to Missouri um, and did a boot camp for two weeks. And then the rest of the summer I spent in South Africa, Johannesburg, Durban, and gaining insight into a world outside of myself and how to encourage others in their faith, in their walk with God, um, seeing kids in an orphanage with no, no hope of a permanent family, seeing disabled children in a home with not a lot of affection, connection, those things kind of break your heart in a way that uh, kind of cracks you wide open for obedience to Christ and things outside of, of what you see as comforts. Yeah, and the home I grew up in could not be been more different. Uh, my dad was an addict of a lot of things, um, a lot of anger, um, just a chaotic household. So as a result, I really wanted to achieve outside the home, either to escape the pressure or to earn my dad's affection, probably both to be honest. And at a certain point, it didn't matter how many things I had achieved, I still felt like none of it was fulfilling. And so for me, I walked into the back of a youth group in the East County of San Diego back in 1992, and the youth pastor just shared the gospel and it all made sense. Gave my life to Jesus in the middle of high school, went from zero to 100, and I just dove in with both feet and fell in love with the church, the Lord, the scriptures, and started to bring friends with me to different events. And a couple of those friends gave their life to Christ, and so that's where the call to ministry fell on my life. Um, and then that pushed me off to a small Christian college where we met. Yep. Hill Country Bible, on behalf of my wife and myself, thank you so much for the opportunity to step into the lead role at Hill Country Bible. As we followed God for the last nine months searching for a church home and a future place for us in ministry, we have fallen in love with the mission of Hill Country. We've fallen in love with the people of Hill Country. We fell in love with the elders and the staff there. And so as you consider affirming us to be the potential next lead pastor of your church, just know that from our hearts, we've got nothing but gratitude, joy, and excitement for what God would have for the years to come. We look forward to being with you soon and thank you so much. God bless. Isn't that exciting? So as God continues moving us towards affirming the elder selection and who God has called to be our next lead pastor, we just invite you to be praying with us at that and remind you that it's going to take place in a vote on September, or sorry, September, not September, May 21st in three weeks. And now as a reminder, you have to be a member to vote. So for those of you who have been around for a good long while, you've been faithfully committed to this family, 
and you have yet to become a member, we would just encourage you, if God's using this opportunity to call you into being a member, there's still an opportunity to do that prior to the 21st. That's going to be on May 19th and 20th at Discover Hill Country. You can always go to hcbc.com discover to get more information about that. So we look forward to seeing how God's going to continue moving and are excited about that. And speaking of God moving, we're excited about how God's going to move today. And as we move into our time of, of, of his, hearing from his word, I'd invite you to please pray with me. Father God, Lord, we just love you. We thank you so much, God, for the way you're working in our lives personally, God, the way you're working in our church, the way you're working in the nations and throughout the world. God, you are at work, and we is a blessing to be a part of what you're doing. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming here to descend amongst mankind, to experience life as we experience it, and yet continue to show us perfect love perfect understanding and perfect faith. God, we just thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done. Father, I pray that as you speak to us today, each one of us would be stirred to listen to you, that you would quiet our spirits, let us hear your voice. Lord, would speak to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome you all to Hill Country Bible Church, and we're so excited to be together, so excited about Tim and Wendy, and look forward to having them here. That's going to be such a great time and opportunity for us to grow in this next adventure of faith. So, so many cool things happening. Okay, you're going to have to get faster than that, okay? So many good things happening, and we're so excited about that. Uh, I'm very curious, how many of you grew up in a perfect family? Now, right now is the moment, if you're a student in the room and your parents can see you, to raise your hand, it may buy you a good steak dinner or some more screen time or like something like that. You might want to raise your hand right now and let them see you. The reality is, is we know that there's no such thing as a perfect family because families are made up of imperfect people. And yet, one of the most significant things that shape the way we are is our family. And for many people, our families have given us wings to soar. And and for many people, our families have laid on us a burden that grounds us. And what's so significant is we expect that 
strangers are going to mistreat us. We expect that our friends are going to misunderstand us, but we always assume that our family is going to love us unconditionally and support us. And that's why family wounds are often the deepest wounds and they often last a lifetime. Now, when it comes to family, I don't know your situation and what happened, but here's what I do know. I do know that when you study the Bible, there's no family in the Bible that's set up as an example of here's the good. In fact, as you read the Bible, you see many stories of families and every one of them is flawed. In fact, from the very first family, Adam and Eve, who had a son, Cain, who killed his brother over a sacrifice, all the way up to the family of Jesus, we see family conflict. You say, Jesus had conflict in his family? I didn't know that. Well, he actually did. I'm going to show it to you today. So if you grab your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 3, or pull up your smart device to look at Mark chapter 3, you're going to see that Jesus had family conflict too. In fact, he experienced family conflict. Now, as we think about that, here's our hope today because of Jesus, that Jesus knows the pain of family conflict, and he can heal your pain. Jesus experienced it. He gets us. He knows what it's like. And so at a time where you might be thinking, God, why in the world did you put me in the family you put me in? feels cruel that you let that happen to me. I just want you to know that God knows that Jesus gets us, that Jesus experienced it too. Now, as you're um, turning to Mark chapter 3, let me just bring you a little update on Jesus' family in case you don't know the history or background of Jesus' family. So Jesus is born to the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit. She's pregnant when Joseph marries her. Jesus is born... As they begin to raise Jesus, Mary and Joseph have more children. In fact, they actually have a bunch of children by human standards. And you say, like, how do you know that, Tim? Well, I'm really glad you ask because it's actually in the Bible. In the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus goes back to his hometown and he's teaching in his hometown and the people are questioning, like, we know this guy. Here's what they say. They say, isn't this the carpenter's son, talking about Joseph? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Like he's got four brothers, and aren't all his sisters with us? So he's got at least two sisters. So Jesus is growing up in a family, and what's so unique is that when God sends his son into the world, he puts his son in a family, goes through the process of birth and growing up and having sibling rivalries and having a mom and dad that are imperfect. And in addition to this, Joseph is last seen when Jesus is 12, and we don't hear from him again in the rest of the Bible. And so the, the assumption that most scholars make is that Joseph probably passed away when Jesus was a teenager uh, or maybe in his 20s. Because of that, so Jesus is now the oldest son in a Jewish family. Now the burden would have fallen on him, maybe at 16, 17, 18, 19, to be able to take care of the family. This is not an easy situation. Jesus understands. 
He understands the, the joy of family, but he also understands the difficulty of family. And we're going to see this unfold as we dive into the story of Jesus. So in Mark chapter 3, Jesus has started his earthly ministry. And when Jesus steps out at age 30 to begin to fulfill the calling that God gave him, which was to bring the good news of the gospel, to present himself as the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and to prove that by healing people, by casting out demons, by teaching, and Jesus starts to do that, he immediately it's a crowd of people. Like people are blown away by Jesus and the crowds appear to be out of control. So picking up in Mark chapter 3, I want us to start in in verse 7. We read, Jesus withdrew, withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. So he moves over to the Sea of Galilee. Large group of people are coming and when they heard and when they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, came to him from, uh, and, and regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. So people are coming from everywhere. And, and here's what you would expect. You would expect that if you were in your hometown and somebody that you knew who had a disease or maybe ha- had some kind of infirmity, like they came home okay. They'd been traveling past Capernaum. And when they got home, they were healed. Or, or somebody was flipped out of their mind, demonic possession, and all of a sudden they were back in their right mind. You would go, whoa, that's a miracle. If you had any problems, what would you do? You'd catch the next camel headed to where Jesus was. If you had a family member with an illness, you would load that person up on the next donkey and you'd be traveling to where Jesus was. So literally, Jesus positions himself on the Sea of Galilee at Capernaum, the city right there on, by the shore, big fishing village at the time, and he's on the road that travels from Damascus and Syria all the way over and down to Egypt, and literally people are hearing in both of those areas and all those regions, and they're all coming And the crowds are just out of control. People desperate for healing and deliverance are coming to Jesus. We continue to read. Uh, Because because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. I mean, can you imagine that? Like, you're trying to get close to him, so is everybody else. Everybody's pushing, pushing, pushing to get close to him, to touch him, so that they can get healed. And Jesus says, we got to put a buffer here so that we don't get just run over. So get a boat. Let's push out from the shore a little bit. I can teach the crowd and keep them from just overwhelming me. So that's the situation that Jesus is in. And then we read, whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. So the people are just coming like crazy. So the question is, what does his family think about this? And here's the answer. Jesus' family thought he was crazy. They thought he was crazy. Watch what happens in verse 20. After picking his disciples and appointing them, 
we read, then Jesus entered a house, and again the crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So like they come into the house, people are coming and going, ministering to people, healing people, casting out demons, teaching, and like breakfast goes and comes and goes, and lunch comes and goes, and dinner comes and goes, and the people keep coming and going and keep coming and going. Like this feels out of control. Verse 21, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. He is out of his mind. His family, living in Nazareth, several miles away, hear about what's taking place in Capernaum, and they come to get him. Now that word to take charge of him is a word that's often translated to arrest somebody. In other words, they're coming to use whatever they need to get him out of there and get him home, even to the point of using force to restrain him and get him home. And the reason why they're doing that is because they're saying he's crazy, he's lost his mind, he's delusional. Now think about that. Any of you ever have somebody in your family call you a lunatic? Some of you probably say, and yeah, I probably was a lunatic at the time. That hurts. That is hard. Jesus is doing what God called him to do, and his family thinks he's crazy. They're coming to get him and take him away. Now, why would they do that? Well, we don't know exactly what their motives are. It could be out of love, that they're worried for his health, and they're worried for his sanity, and they're worried for his safety, so they feel like the only thing they can do is come and pull him out of there, take him home and hide him. They may be doing it because of their reputation, because the oldest son of the family, when he goes off the rails, like everybody would be talking about it, bringing shame on the family. Maybe that was the reason. We don't know, but we know they're serious about getting Jesus. And this is just the first time they actually do something like this again. So this is the moment in Jesus' ministry where everything's going good. A few chapters later, we're going to find out in the Gospel of John that Jesus starts teaching hard things about what it means to follow him and what the cost of discipleship will be, and the crowd starts to thin. In addition to that, the, the religious leaders have kind of put a price on his head, so to speak. They're coming after him, so the crowd is getting less and less and less, and Jesus is losing his following, and Jesus has a conversation with his brothers and here's how that conversation goes down. In John chapter 7, we read, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews were waiting to take his life. So in the Jerusalem area down by in Judea, there's a bounty on him, so to speak. They're after his life. So he's staying in the Galilee, up where he's been staying, and watch what happens. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. Watch this. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret since you're doing these things show yourself to the world for even his own brothers did not believe in him what are they saying 
They're saying, Jesus, obviously you want to be a big deal. That's all you care about. Like the number of hits you get, the number of likes you get, the number of shares you get, that's what you care about. You're wanting to be a public figure. I, I looked up the word in the Greek to see what it said. And it had a couple names beside it. People you know real well, right? No, I'm just kidding. It actually means public figure. You want to be famous. So why don't you go to Jerusalem, the big stage, show off, and then you get what you want. So his brothers are actually accusing him of being a show-off, wanting to be a celebrity. Now, that's hard coming from regular people, from your enemies, but coming from your brothers? Now, let's face it. There have been lots of times when getting criticism from my friends and even my family was well-deserved because I deserved it. But Jesus doesn't deserve it. What is he doing? He is healing people. He is taking care of people. He is bringing God's love to people. He doesn't deserve it at all to be unjustly criticized by your own family for doing good. Jesus gets us. He's been there. He's experienced the pain. And he's experienced the rejection. So the next thing we see is Jesus gets piled up on. In fact, as we read a little bit further in the passage, we see another group that attacks him. Now, now, when you've got a target on your back from the people around you, what you expect from your family is to support you. So when your family doesn't support you and other people are coming after you, that makes it even more painful. And what we see is, is the respected leaders call Jesus demonic. Like the leaders are calling Jesus demonic. Look what happens next in the story. While the family's coming to get him, take him by force, because he's crazy, verse 22, the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Now, who are these people? These religious leaders or the scribes, the teachers of the law, are the ones that look at the law of Moses and judge whether things are of God or whether they're not. So they come and look at Jesus' ministry and what he's doing, and here's what they say. Not only is Jesus not legit, but Jesus is actually an agent of Satan. Beelzebub literally is an ancient word for an agent of Satan. Like, Jesus, you're operating on Satan's behalf, and you're casting out demons by the power of demons. You're a demonic person. So Jesus is being criticized for doing good through evil means. That's just strong. So Jesus gives a response to this. And the response is, it comes in two two ways. And the first way is just... Like, that's stupid, okay? Like, that's, that's his first response. Look at what he says. In verse 23, so Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. And here's what he says first. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In modern terminology, 
That's like saying if Anthony Davis blocked LeBron James's shot every time he came into the lane, they're on the same team, by the way, for those of you who don't know, the Lakers would never win another game, would they? Like they would be playing defense against their own offense. Or, as somebody shared with me, that's like the center on the UT football team hiking the ball to the quarterback and turning around and tackling the quarterback. Like you're not going to make any yardage if your team is fighting your own team, right? And some of you remember some of those lean years where you kind of thought that's what UT was doing. Like, how are we going to win if we keep killing ourselves? So Jesus says, guys, your logic, like with all your education, your logic is faulty. Like, that's silly. And then he says something more profound. Listen to this parable. See if you can figure out what he's saying. Verse 27, he says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can rob his house. Now, what you got to figure out here is who's the strong man, what's his house, what are the possessions, and who can defeat the strong man, tie him up. So one of the Bible scholars, William Lane, explains it this way. I want you to see how he says it. He says, Satan is the strong man whose strength is evidenced in the enslavement of men through sin, possession, disease, and death. In other words, in the house, Satan's domain, there are possessions that belong to him. Satan is working in the world. This is his domain, and he's capturing people and putting them in bondage to sin and selfishness and disease and pride and ultimately to death. And then he goes on to say, the demons are his servants in this destructive world. Only one who is stronger than he can enter into his realm and bind him and plunder his goods. In other words, free the people. He goes on to say, this Jesus, this Jesus has done Jesus' ability to cast out demons means that one stronger than Satan has come to restrain his activity and to release the enslaved. What Jesus is saying is, when you guys admit that I'm casting out demons, and watch this, Jesus' critics never say the miracles were fake. They never say that the demons were not being cast out because they know it. Everybody knew it. Everybody in the region knew it. Everybody saw it. None of the religious leaders ever say, oh, that he faked that. But what they say is, he's working with Satan. And what Jesus is saying is, no, I'm working against him and I am stronger. Jesus is saying, I am now beginning to initiate the coming kingdom of God. And when the kingdom of God breaks into the world, people are going to be liberated. They're going to be free from sin. They're going to be freed from disease. They're going to be freed from the power that Satan has over people. Ultimately, that's going to culminate when Jesus returns at the end and establishes his kingdom. And in the meantime, the work of Jesus is being done through Jesus' people on the planet. That's what Jesus is saying. And then he says something very positive and encouraging. 
Notice what he says in verse 28. He says, I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. In other words, Jesus is coming into the world to forgive sin, to forgive blasphemy, to save people. That's what he's coming in. And then he gives a warning. Verse 29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Here's what Jesus is saying. Anybody who says and continues in unbelief, saying Jesus is not really from God, that Jesus is not really who he says he is, that he's not doing the work of God, that the Holy Spirit's power working through Jesus is actually a fraud, a fake, not true. How can that person be forgiven since Jesus is the one who forgives? So if you reject the forgiver, you reject the forgiveness. The sin that can't be forgiven is to live in a perpetual state of rejecting Jesus. Because how do you get forgiven when you don't believe in the forgiver? That's Jesus' warning. He lays it right out there for this group of people. Verse 30, he said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. So the religious Respected religious leaders are saying Jesus is demonic, while Jesus' family is saying Jesus is crazy. Now, if you've ever wondered, like, Jesus, do you, do you have any understanding or feel for, like, what I've been through? I just want you to think about what that would be like. And that's what Jesus experienced through his family. We move on from that scene, and now we move to the family arriving And in this moment, something changes that shakes up the whole course of history, and you are actually part of what's coming in these next few verses. In verse 31, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrive, standing outside. They sent someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. So in the house... Disciples sitting in front, a crowd of people all around the streets looking in the windows, crammed into the house, huge crowd. Jesus' mother and brothers arrive and they send a messenger in, hey, we're out here, Jesus, you come out to us. Now the societal pressure in that moment is huge. I mean, family was more important than anything in the Jewish culture at this time in history. And so the expectation would be, mommy's outside, and to respect her and your brothers, you need to drop what you're doing, what you're teaching, what you're healing. You need to drop that and go outside. And there's not a single person in the room at that moment that wouldn't have expected Jesus to do that because that's just the way it's done. That's just the way it's done. I want you to see what Jesus does. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Whoa. You could hear a pin drop. You don't say things like that. Jesus does because he's about to create something. 
that will change the course of history for every single follower of Jesus Christ. And it has to do with family. Watch what Jesus does. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him. Now, once you catch the, the, the room, because the words convey this, Jesus begins to make eye contact with the people that are right in front of him. In fact, Matthew's gospel says that Jesus started pointing at them with his finger, like he is looking face to face in a personal way with everybody that's before him. And then these words, here are my mother and my brothers, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. With that declaration, Jesus changes the world because Jesus is now forming a new forever family and inviting anyone and everyone, including his own mother and brothers, to come and join him. You may say, well, what do you mean he's creating a forever family? Well, Jesus has two families. He's got his earthly family, Mary and the brothers and the sisters, but he also has his heavenly family. He is the son of God. The Trinity is a family. And now what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to bring all of you into the family of God. You're going to have God as your father, the God who is perfectly loving, who can do the best for you, wise, holy. He is now your father, and I am now your brother. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that we're co-heirs with Jesus. All the benefits of heaven now belong to us. We have a new family. Think about that. The man who gave me my name, Hawks, had a father who gave him his name, Hawks, and then left, leaving my grandmother and my dad's mom to fend for herself with four kids. And my dad didn't have a dad. So what did he do? Did he follow in his father's footsteps, preferring the bottle over being a man? Did he spend his life with a big chip on his shoulder because he had no dad? Did he pass on that pain to me and my brothers? You know what he did? He got a new dad. He came to faith in Jesus Christ and he focused on his father in heaven to be his father. He believed the gospel that he had been brought into the family of God and he began to live at a different level. He wasn't a perfect father, but what he passed on to me was a confidence that beyond him there was a greater father. And that's what Jesus is doing for you. I don't know how bad your dad and mom messed up your life. I don't know. I know there's a lot of pain with that. I don't know how bad 
you've messed up your kids' lives. I don't know. I just don't know. You do, and so does Jesus. And what Jesus has done, he's he's created a family for you, a forever family, and invites you to come into that family, to be part of it. And in that family, you can find healing because Jesus gets you. He knows what it's like to be in a broken family. And he knows what it's like to be in a perfect family. And he invites us to come and be part of his perfect family. Now, it's very important to me that you understand a couple very key personal things to begin to embrace all that Jesus has done for you. So the first one that I really want you to embrace is this. Don't give up on your family as imperfect as it is. Some of you, for for you right now in this moment, this is a non-starter, you're checking out. Like, uh, Tim, you don't know, you don't know. I don't, I don't. But Jesus does. In fact, Jesus didn't give up on his family. We see Jesus reaching out to his mother. In fact, Jesus is actually suffering on the cross, dying in a moment where a child should be able to look at mommy and say, mommy, mommy, help me. And Jesus is not worried about her helping him. Jesus is actually helping her. He looks down from the cross, realizing as a widow, with the oldest son being crucified, that she needs someone to help her, take care of her in that culture. So he looks down at her and he sees the disciple John, and he says, John, here is your mother. Will you take the responsibility to care for Mary for the rest of her life? He's caring for his mom. No grudge being held. No family history. He's caring for his mom. And then, after the resurrection, Jesus makes a personal appearance to his brother James. The unbeliever that was mocking him, Jesus shows up. James realizes that he was so wrong, puts his trust in Jesus, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church, ends up dying a martyr's death. That family was restored. Now, I'm not saying that that will happen for you. I'm just saying that Jesus didn't give up. So here's what I want to offer. I do this very, very carefully. Because I know this is hard. First, release your past because you can't go back and change it. What happened in the past is over. Let it go. Second, Forgive. Now, let me be really clear about what I mean by forgive. Forgive doesn't mean sitting down with somebody. It it could be that, but it doesn't have to be. Forgiveness is something that you give away. It's not something that you get. So you can forgive right now. Just say, like 
Jesus, help me, I, I forgive them for what they did. What that does is that frees you up. It releases you from having to spend the rest of your life litigating something in your heart and in your mind that you literally can't change. It gives you liberty not to carry that burden. Here's the third thing. Begin to pray for them. (laughs) You've got to be kidding me. Begin to pray for them. Why do I say that? The reason why I say begin to pray for them, Jesus knows that there's something that happens when we begin to pray for people that we have problems with. In fact, he challenges to pray for our enemies, to literally pray for our enemies. And there's something that happens when we begin to pray for them that God does in us, whether they ever respond to our prayers or not. Try it. See, here's what I want you to know. If you have come into the family of Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus, you now have the power of heaven, not necessarily to work out all of the externals of what your family may or may not do going forward, but to work out all of the internals of how that's affected you and what you can do to move forward into a life that can be filled with hope and joy and peace regardless of how bad the past was. And the one who gets you, Jesus, who's been in a situation where he experienced that, will gently and lovingly walk with you and shepherd you through dealing with those things that have come your way that are really hard. The other thing that Jesus did was he gave you a new family? And the question is, are you taking full advantage of the new family that he's given you? So here's the second thing I want you to think about. Fully commit to God's family, the church. The family that Jesus was forming, that he literally died for, is the church of Jesus Christ and experience the richness of serving God together. Remember what Jesus said, those who do the will of God, they become my family. So church is not something that you just show up for. It's something that you become part of, both the relationships and the mission of using your gifts and ability along with other people to advance the greatest thing that's happening in the world, which is the kingdom of Jesus Christ expanding and growing and breaking out and ultimately leading to the return of Jesus Christ. When you've got something and someone to be with you in camaraderie moving forward, it makes the pain of the past easier to leave behind. Easier to leave behind. So Cindy and I had a dinner with a couple this week. Uh, they've been in the church for 25 years. It was a great dinner. And we sat down and we started reminiscing and we're talking about what we saw God do in our church and their particular part, the ministries that they had started and the people that had experienced life change. And as we're sitting there having this conversation with them, I'm just getting more and more jazzed about like this is the way God intended it to be. People in long-term loving relationships going after Jesus and his kingdom together and watching all the cool things that he did. It was such a great deal. But it also raised something in my heart, and I'm just going to be really straightforward and honest with you today. During the pandemic, 
my prayer was that God would wake up his church, that he would wake up you, he would wake up me, that during a period of time when all of our activities got shut down, that we would rediscover family. And when I say rediscover family, I'm not talking about the family that is hurried all the time, pushing activities and um, opportunities where we see each other as we jump in the car and drive to the next thing and drop each other off and we push and push and push. I'm talking about like face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball relationships and would go, that's more important to me. Like my, my relationships are more important to me. The other thing that I, I prayed for is that with the busyness out of the way, that everybody would pause for a moment and start asking the question, was it really worth all that I was doing, the crazy, breakneck, frenetic pace of this consumer culture that has me a prisoner, that dominates what I do, and that that would fall by the wayside, and that we would all reorient what we do. So, three years later... The jury is in on people that are followers of Jesus and what the pandemic did for them. So I want to show you. Uh, Barna just finished their research asking asking this question, this question of people that call themselves born-again followers of Jesus. And here's the question. Are you deeply committed to practicing your religious faith? Not deeply committed to thinking your religious faith or feeling your religious faith, but actually in the way you do life, you're practicing your faith. So pre-pandemic in 2020, 85% of born-again Christians said, yes, if you look at my life and the way I live my life, I'm involved in practicing my faith. 2023 numbers? What do you think it is? Don't shout it out. Just get a number in your head. 2023, it's dropped to 50%. That's half of the people that say they're born-again followers of Jesus have stopped practicing their faith. I mean, we've seen it here at Hill Country Bible Church. Pre-pandemic, 6,000 people would show up to worship Jesus on a weekend. And now we, we have half that many. So it's just an interesting thing. And by the way, they're not all online. A couple of other things that came out of this that are pretty interesting is when they looked at the generations, um, the generation that has dropped out of their faith practice the most are the baby boomers. To me, I think about a lot of these people are people that spent 25, 30, 40 years of their life serving Jesus pandemic hit, they stopped, stopped attending church, stopped serving, stopped being involved, and they just have decided, like, I guess golfing is more fun. I don't know. Maybe there's another thing out there that I haven't found yet. I'm not on social media, so I don't know about all the cool things y'all are doing. Um, Maybe I missed out on something. So I just want you to know, I'm not discouraged at all. I'm just sad. I'm sad for my brothers and sisters in Christ that have found another love because someday when they stand in the presence of Jesus, they're going to go, what was I wasting my life on? Now, let me tell you why I'm really excited because there are two things that really excite me. The first one is you. 
I am so excited that you're here, that you're moving forward in your faith, that you want to see yourself not only connected with other believers, but on mission to use your gifts to move the ministry forward. Because God has always used a Gideon-sized army to make the biggest difference. And sometimes it's the faithful, committed, smaller remnant that makes a huge difference. And folks, we have to make a difference. I want, here, I'm going to give you something to think about. I want you to take this and think about it. If a pandemic did not get the attention of the American church to wake up and go all in with Jesus, what is it going to take? I have a feeling there are darker days ahead because God wants to mobilize his people to do his deal. That's just my feeling. I'm not afraid of it. I just believe that there's a group of people and that you're part of that that are going to run hard after Jesus and make a huge difference in our community, in our city, in our nation, and in our world. Here's the second reason why I'm really excited. In the Barna survey, the generation that's the most open to a relationship with God, to discussing spiritual things and exploring them, it's not the baby boomers, it's not the millennials, Gen Y, Z, whatever they are, it's Gen X, I'm, excuse me, Gen Z. It's the high school and college age generation right now are the most open to spiritual things. And, and those of you who are in that category right now, I, I just want to know, I'm so proud of you. Like every week I hear about something that this younger generation is doing on their own, and, and it just blows my mind. For example, this past week, one guy decided to start a revival. Like, how does he do that? You know how he does that? He asked all of his friends at the high schools from this area, and they reach out to high schools all around, and they show up at Cedar Park, on the grassy fields there, on Wednesday night in that window between the terrible thunderstorms, the adult that was working with him said, hey, can you talk to Cedar Park about getting a backup indoor place? He said, I'll do that. And then that night he said, I didn't do that because I had been praying and God told me it was going to be good. <laughs> they had hundreds of high school students that showed up and they prayed and confessed their sins and asked God to pour out his spirit in revival. So God's moving because Jesus made a new family. And my prayer for you is that part of the way you work through the pain of your past is to join the family with God the Father, Jesus your brother, and go on mission together with this family to change the world. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, I just thank you that you provide all that we need. My prayer is that we will open up our hands and our hearts and our schedule and begin to let you move us 
into the greatest calling, the greatest mission of all. And that is to bring the glory and the good news of forgiveness and freedom in Jesus Christ to a culture that's wandering around in confusion. And Father, my prayer is that every single person here would have the opportunity over the next year to lead someone to faith and to disciple them and that we would see a movement starting with our youngest and moving all the way through the church in Austin and beyond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, before we start heading out, in our last minutes of, uh, of our worship service here, this is a time where I want to ask the question, what's God saying to you? Maybe you've never been a part of a family like the one Jesus can bring us into. That's never been an opportunity for you. There's going to be people down here at the front that would love to talk to you about what does it mean to accept Christ into your life and to live a life on mission with Jesus. Maybe you are a part of that family, and you're ready to use those gifts, and you're ready to go all in for Jesus. We, we want to support you in that. There's so many ways that this team of people here at this church, the body of believers, want to impact that for you and want to come along and support you in that. And you can always learn more about ways you can get engaged and plugged in serving the body of Christ here at Hill Country at hcbc.com discover. And also, as part of our worship services, we think, guys, we always start this service. We worship through singing and prayer and hearing God's word, and we worship through giving back to God for what he's so faithfully given to us. So we just want to say for all of you who are faithful givers, thank you for your faithful giving. And for those of you who um, want to continue to do that, we do that through worshiping. You can do that at the give boxes on the way out. You can also do it at hcbc.com give. If you're a guest for us today, we don't want you to feel any obligation to give. We want more than anything that you've experienced the goodness of God's love today and that you'd be encouraged by that. So as we close, let's stand. I'll invite the men and women of our prayer team forward. Again, if you want to speak to any of these folks, we would love to talk to you. If you've never had an opportunity to meet Pastor Tim, he would love to meet you. He'll be out in the Welcome Center out here to the right. And uh, we just look forward to seeing you guys next week. Have a great week.